0: I invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll be picking up in verse 16, reading through to verse 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Mother, we ask that now we would see the truth, as is found here in this section of Scripture, that your Holy Spirit would enable us to understand in Christ's name, Amen. Well, over the past several weeks, as we've looked here in Ecclesiastes, particularly in Chapter Three, the the theme has pretty much been the same: God is sovereign over the seasons and times of life. He decrees when. Uh, It is a time to be born and a time to die. He decrees when it's a time to plant and a time to pluck up. He decrees when it's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to cry and weep and a time to laugh, a time for love and hate and a time for war and a time for peace. God is sovereign over it all. And with such a view that God is sovereign over all of life and that God is sovereign over the timing of all these events, it raises a question in our minds, or it should, it raises the question of justice. Or better yet, it raises the question about all the injustices that we see in the world. Put bluntly, if God is sovereign, why do the wicked get away with murder, so to speak? Why are the court systems a far cry from a place where justice is actually served? Why do criminals go free and we see the innocent serve time? I don't know if you're familiar with the book called The Night by Eli Weasel? Well, in that book, he describes the most traumatic memory of his life, a scene from the year of 1945. When he and his family were sent to the concentration camp by the German military machine. This is what he wrote As the sea of people drifts by, I see for the last time a mother and her little daughter, ghostly, silent, and introverted. I see them walk away, hand in hand, closely entwined. I will continue seeing them in my mind's eye as long as I live, how they disappear. The mother was his mother. The daughter was his little sister. They were disappearing from view and forever lost to him in the uh, uh, internment camps at Auschwitz. And he too had experienced a firsthand God's inaction in the face of injustice. Where was God? His apparent indifference to human suffering. He says the eternal Lord of the universe, the all-powerful, was silent. He expressed the feelings of countless defenseless victims who pleaded for a hand to intervene and deliver in the day of evil. Many, many people that suffered like that. And they had no means of escape. And for many of them and for years, no help ever came. See, it's stories like that, and many more could be given that cause us to question, cause us to ask, if we're actually honest, where was God? Where was he? How can he be sovereign over each and every event and yet stand innocently aside while a mother and a daughter disappear into the night, never to be seen again? Victims in the hands of evil, victims of injustice. See, Solomon understood this, He, he felt the weight of it. He writes in verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Life again now so we know, because we got to keep track, it, it's under the sun. That's how it's being viewed. And, and we've learned that under the sun means the living life, this futile, meaningless life, uh, apart from God, with no regard for God, no gratitude to God, it, it, denying the very existence of God. And this time we see that under the sun is what we find is this unbridled injustice. And even worse than that is that the court system itself is corrupt, the very place where you would hope to find justice and receive justice, and now all that is found there is unfairness. And even worse than that, there's nothing to be done about it. These people are defenseless victims with no means of escape. You see, Solomon's frustration here is not simply that injustice is done, injustice, but that it goes unpunished. Martin Luther says in this verse, he's not complaining because there is wickedness in the place of justice, but because the wickedness in the place of justice cannot be corrected. There's nothing to be done. And so that's the problem that enters his mind in these verses. That's the question that's ringing in his ears. How can God be good and in control when there's so much evil in the world? How how when the wicked prosper in their sin and the righteous suffer in their obedience, how can it be? that that is the God we serve. And the first answer he gives to that question that he asks is found in verse 17. He sees all the injustice and he said, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. What's going on here is Solomon's preaching to himself. He's applying his own earlier sermon. Remember what he said in in the beginning of chapter 3, for everything there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven. Well, if there's a season and a time for everything under heaven, then there must be a time somewhere for justice. And so he's applying it. Uh, There's a time for every matter and for every work, then there's a time for justice. And so Solomon takes the spiritual principles that he taught earlier in his earlier sermon, and he applies it here to the injustice, to the issue of injustice. And so the first answer to the question, how do we reconcile God's sovereignty and injustice, is to remind us that a time of judgment is Coming. See, the issue of injustice, the issue of justice and injustice is one of timing. What we perceive as criminals getting away with evil acts is just that, it's just our perception under the sun. Of course, many under the sun walk away free. We see it every day, but even still, the wicked will not get away with their wicked deeds. There is still a righteous God out there, and he sees their deeds, and someday he will call them to account. Psalm 37 says, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. See, God gets the last laugh. While we may not see it in time, justice will be carried out in eternity. Nobody gets away with it. That's his first point. Now, one preacher said, our hope doesn't lie in the human halls of justice, but in the divine courtroom where the righteous judge, Jesus Christ, presides. See, God has promised the day when his son will judge the righteous and the wicked. We read about it in Acts 17. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Obviously speaking of Jesus. A fixed day to judge the world is coming. Hebrews tells us it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27. And notice what Solomon says here. You probably picked up on it. We just read it in Hebrews as well. He makes the point that both the righteous and the wicked will be judged. So if you fall in either of those categories, or both (laughs) at times, God will judge you. He will judge me. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. But here's the difference. And there is a major difference. The hope of the believer, the one who trusts in Christ, the hope of those who are united in love to the divine judge is their judgment will be different than the wicked. Abraham made this point. He's in Sodom. You remember Sodom, and he says to God, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And so he's looking over and saying, God's going to wipe out Sodom. And what about the righteous people? You're not going to judge them in the same way. And the answer is, he will deal justly. Yes, he will. He, He will handle the righteous in the correct way, he will deal justly. Jesus explains all this for us, by the way. He does it in Matthew 25. And he's referring to the final judgment. Now, I'm going to read this in its entirety because it helps explain this judgment. It's worth us considering. This is what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked or clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Well, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, and the eternal fire prepare for the devil and his angels." but the righteous into eternal life. That is how it's going to be on the day of judgment. That day is still before us. That day has not come, but it will come. There are sheep and goats. There are those on his right and on left. There are the righteous and the unrighteous. And the hope of every believer on that day is that God has shown us mercy and grace by pouring out the punishment we deserve upon Jesus, his son. And because Christ died on the believer's behalf, declaring us righteous, and because we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, so his justice will prevail, God punished his son in place of us. And so those who are believers, those who are united to Christ, they will receive God's grace and forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. That's how Jesus explains it. And the wicked, those who stand apart from Jesus, they will receive God's justice and wrath and the reward for them will be eternal punishment. This isn't the fire and brimstone preacher that I am just saying what I want to say to scare you. These are the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's the point. Whenever we see injustice in the world, the point in our context, we can cry out to God knowing that at an appointed time, be it here or in eternity, he will deal justly. If you go to the very end of the book that we're reading, Solomon says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen. And see, all this being true, all this being true, we're still left though with a question in our minds. Uh, why is it often delayed? Why does he delay the judgment? I mean, the martyrs themselves in Revelation crowd, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge? Why does he delay? Why the wait? Why not bring uh, uh, the wicked to justice now? And Solomon answers that question in verses 18 to 21. And he makes several different observations in light of this. Look at verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Now the word testing in Hebrew means to sift, to winnow. And God is revealing what man is really like. And he's sifting man, how? Through injustice. God is working out all his eternal purposes through the deeds of men, even the unjust deeds of the wicked. Now, one of the purposes of life, this is what Phil Reichen says, is to examine, one of the purposes of life is to examine and ultimately reveal how our place in the universe and our true relationship to God. And so God takes all the injustices of the world to show that without him, human beings are no different than animals. When man leaves God out of his life, he becomes no different than the beast's. And to make that point in our passage, he, uh, Solomon points out two common characteristics that are, that are the same between man and beast, death and dust. It seems hey, he's, he's talked about God's final judgment, and, and, and so now in his mind, he starts to contemplate death a little bit, and he came to this conclusion. Look at verses 19 and 20. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same, one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all his vanity. All go to one place, all from the dust, and the dust all return. Solomon here is just reminding us of the curse of Adam's sin. Dust we are, and to dust we shall return. That's what Genesis three nineteen says. Apart from God our future is no different than beasts. Psalm forty-nine states, Man in his pomp will not remain, he is like the beasts that perish. Psalm forty nine twelve. And so if, 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 you did, if you were like, wow, Solomon really has a terrible view of life earlier, everything's meaningless, well, now he calls you a beast. And if you want a literal picture of this, uh, to see what happens literally, we're obviously speaking spiritually, but if you, if you want to see a literal picture, look at Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was, uh, was walking on the, on the roof, we're told, in Daniel 4. He's walking on the roof of his palace, and he's looking out. And he says, is not this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power to the glory of my majesty? You see it. Um, We see that in kings and presidents even today. Look at my mighty power. And then all of a sudden, as the words were spoken, a voice came from heaven. And this is the voice that, "O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And then we read in verse 33 immediately the word was fulfilled. He was driven, Nebuchadnezzar was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. And his nails were like bird's claws. That's what happens. He denied God. He he tried to claim his power. God had no place in his life. And when you usurp the sovereignty and claim it for yourself, you become no different than an animal, than a beast. And in Solomon, in verse 21, he takes it a step further. When life is viewed under the sun, we don't even appreciate the difference between people and animals in what comes to the existence after death. 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Based on what is seen under the sun, apart from God, who knows what happens? We've never been there. None of us have been there. No one has come back to tell us Either did those people that wrote those books uh, that you find in Amazon. They've been to heaven hanging out with Jesus. That didn't happen. It's all in their mind. Um, and, And so who knows what happened? A person who lives as if there is no God can come to no better conclusion that we're just like the beast. There's nothing different. And given the context, if we're just like animals, justice and injustice becomes pointless categories. Animals have no concept of right or wrong. No one sees a dog kill another animal and stops them and says it's time for court. We don't do it. And we laugh because it seems ridiculous. And so by allowing injustice to continue, God is testing people to show that apart from him, you are just like that dog. You are a beast. And we see this played out in our society and seen in both directions. On the one hand... You have a group that proudly proclaim that man and beast are no different. And they say that there should be no differences. On the other hand, like, we're like animals and we have no conscience when it comes to killing. Think of the shooting this past weekend in Buffalo and the wars that are going on and countless other shootings. Or think of what I mentioned earlier when I quoted uh, the man that was in Auschwitz, Hitler's Holocaust. Or, or the modern day Holocaust, the proud killing of innocent babies. All of these are, are more and more and more of them, they're out there, are beastly behaviors. I would argue that some of the ones I mentioned are, are, are demonic as well, but the point here is if there is no God, who cares? I mean, really, who cares? You may say, well, that just seems like the right thing to do. I don't care if that's what you think, if there's no God. I mean, if a baby or a Jewish person during the Holocaust, a victim in Ukraine or a victim on the street of Buffalo, if they're no different than a dog, who cares? Why treat them any differently? Nothing has value. Everything becomes meaningless. Or to put it another way, apart from God, there is no one to actually tell us what the universal ground rules are, what is right and what is wrong. There's no absolute moral values. And so everything goes. We're left with the survival of the fittest. Whoever yells the most or gets the most votes, that's what's moral all of a sudden. That's what Solomon's telling us. Man and their rejection of God, rejecting that they are bearers of the image of God, live like beasts. They're simply surviving. And when one writer uh, he considers that, this is what he says: "What a waste! What eternal dereliction!" What sad blasphemy, what unspeakable folly to reject the eternal love of the Father God and to deny the high calling of man to be the bearer of the image of God. It's eternal dereliction, but that's what we're left with. And so indirectly, Solomon is showing us and pleading with us that that we would take the way of justice he, he, he's pleading with us to follow the way of meaning, to accept the way of life. Acknowledge that there is one true God. And just as importantly, you're not him. And, and, and acknowledge that every matter is in his hands, not yours. Acknowledge that he sets the moral absolutes. He tells us what's right and wrong. And we're accountable to him. Acknowledge that someday there will be a judgment and justice will Prevail. And then, having acknowledged all those things, go on living your life to the glory of that same God. That's what verse 22 says. Look there. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring to see what he will be after him? What's he saying? You're not the master of the future. You don't know what's going to happen. So rejoice in the present. God has given you the present to be enjoyed. And it gives you opportunities, and this is why He's given them to you, so you can serve Him. You prove your love to Him. Opportunities to act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, as Micah says in chapter 6, verse 8. See, one wise man, one commentator put, faith. Faith, our faith in God, learns to live with seeming inconsistencies and absurdities. For we live by promises and not by explanations. When we look out, things don't seem right. We we read our Bible in the morning, and then we go out and live our lives, and, and, and they don't come together. We can't explain life, he says, but we must experience life, either enduring it or enjoying it. Solomon calls us to accept life, enjoy it a day at a time, and be satisfied. Not satisfied with ourselves, but satisfied with what God gives to us in this life. You're not going to explain it all. And in light of that, we're just to live for him and trusting it all to him. Well, let me me make a few applications. First, we must be willing to apply sermons. Why do I say that? How does that tie in? Well, it's not enough to be hearers of the word. We must be doers. You, you must learn to reason when it comes to things that you're unsure of from the Scriptures. And, and Solomon did that. Solomon earlier said there's a time for every matter under heaven. And from that, he reasoned there must be a time for justice. I don't see it, but it has to be True. He was reasoning from what he knew to be true and allowing that to interpret life around him. Uh, he wasn't allowing what he saw happening to interpret life. When he looked around, he would say there's never justice. But when he looked at Scripture, he knew justice would come. Uh, and so when he looked to the Word, he knew better. And that's what we must do. That's the point. When you are uncertain about a course of action when the road ahead doesn't seem clear, when especially when all the evidence under the sun suggests that God is just not just, he is not fair, he is not good, or he doesn't care, we're to follow Solomon's example, we're to fall back on our knees, look in the word and remember and walk by faith. Take what you know to be true from the word of God and apply it. At that moment. Doesn't mean you'll be happy with it. It just means that you know that God is in control. Second, let me follow up on this. Your worldview shapes your beliefs. Your worldview, and I'm gonna explain what I mean, your attitudes and your actions, all those things are explained by your worldview. Now, this could be an application of every single sermon of Ecclesiastes. But given that Solomon mentions here um, that we're no different than the beast, now's a good time to bring this up. See, a worldview, a worldview that embraces that we're created in the image of God and we're accountable to him, that will have a radically different approach to matters of politics, morality, and so on and so forth, than a person who believes we are no different than an animal an animal, that is, and accountable to no one but ourselves. They're two different worldviews. They're two different worldviews. This is why we have issues like abortion and racism. This is why we have the issue of being unable in our day to define a man or a woman. This is why we're coming at things from two different worldviews. If there is no God who has spoken has spoken to us through His Son and His Word, then who cares? That's the result. Again, as I said earlier, it's survival of the fittest. Anything goes because I'm the one who ultimately matters. Lying, cheating, stealing, murder are really no different than telling the truth, honesty, working, or saving a life. Whatever gets me what I want. Remember, I said it, we don't punish a dog for stealing a bone from another dog. And so we shouldn't be surprised when a non Christian with a worldview that denies the existence of God embraces evil. Now, of course, there are non Christians who some of their beliefs don't comport with their worldview, they comport more with ours, and so they embrace life, they embrace good things. And there are some Christians whose worldview contradicts, their biblical worldview contradicts with their beliefs and actions. But the point I'm making is that if your worldview is uh, denying of God, as Solomon's pointing out, well, then no wonder you embrace evil. And as Christians, we need to be careful to filter all our beliefs, our attitudes, our actions through the grid of the biblical worldview. And see, that is why Because of the biblical worldview, that is why justice matters to us. Solomon's talking about justice. It's part of God's character. We're His image bearers, and so it's part of our biblical worldview. And so it should matter to us as well. Third, speaking of justice, let me let me just clarify: when we learn what we learn here, doesn't mean we don't seek justice. When Solomon's saying, well, evil people will do evil things, and I just said that, and uh, are going to do evil things, or or we can't have full justice in this world, and we have to wait to eternity, so why bother? That's not the point. Uh, The man I quoted earlier, um, Eli Weasel, he said, there may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest injustice. Depending on our place in society, the spiritual or civil authority that God has given to us, it is our responsibility to fight against injustice. As fathers and mothers, as pastors and elders, as citizens and public officials, we are called to do what is right in the home, in the church, and in society. We will fall short. We will never end the injustices of this world. People will still cheat the system. Evil people will still murder and get away with it. Governments will still be corrupt. But we don't just throw our hands in the air and say, oh, well. We protest. We fight for what is right. And at the same time, we trust God will see to it that justice is done. In this world or in the next. And so as those created in the image of God, we are to pursue justice. Finally. Remember, a judgment is coming. Remember it's coming and then live accordingly. This also falls on the Christian worldview. The fact that our days are numbered and after death comes judgment should shape how you live today. The Apostle Peter explains this. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that you should all perish, but that all should reach repentance. Remember, if God were to give us all justice immediately upon committing evil, we would have all been damned already from the womb. But God is patient, not wishing that any of his chosen should perish, but that they will repent. And then Peter starts speaking of the judgment, and he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then he says, Since all these things are true, in light of... that that there's a day appointed for us to die. In light of the judgment, the coming judgment, he says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In light of the fact that there's a judgment, in light of the fact that Jesus will return, in light of the fact that justice will prevail, how are you to live godly, holy lives? Rejoicing in our work as we work to the glory of God. Pursuing justice, knowing justice will prevail. That's why we do it. That is why you're to do it. Our worldview compels us because of who God is and what he's done in our lives and what he will accomplish in the future and what will happen at the judgment, we are to do these things for his glory. That's how the believer is to live. What about the unbeliever? Let me address the unbeliever. I don't know if there's an unbeliever here. I don't know if there are any, listen, I say this every week, I hope to continue to do it until the last sermon I ever preach. I know your worldview, if you're an unbeliever, tells you everything's going to be okay. It used to be my worldview. I, I know you think it will just all work out in the end. And even if there is a God, he would never judge me. I've heard people say that. And anyway, Solomon said it. I mean, he's the wisest man in the world. Who knows what happens after death? I mean, he said it. Who knows? So why, why bother living that way now? I might as well live for myself. The problem is, again, the, the, that's not a biblical worldview. And see, although Solomon here writes, who knows what happens after death, the truth is we do know. We know, how? Because God in Christ has revealed it to us. Jesus knows what happens after death. Look at verse 22. Who is able to bring us to see what will be after us? The answer, Jesus. He is able to bring us to see what will be after us because he has been there, he has died, and he's reached the other side and he's come back. He's able to answer that because Jesus came back to tell us. He, he died and didn't stay in the grave. On the third day, he rose again. Now everyone who is united to him by faith will someday rise again to a better life. That's what Hebrews 11.35 says, Even now, Jesus is preparing a place for his children. That's what John 14 says. This is why we know for certain we're going to heaven. Because Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's what 2 Timothy 1 says. And so what may have been unclear to Solomon, and you've got to remember, he's writing poetry. He's writing from the view of under the sun. But what was unclear to Solomon is clear to us because God has revealed it to us in Christ. And so the question you have to ask, and the question you should be asking if you're an unbeliever is, what do I do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus knowing that he's God's son who died for sinners? What will you do with Jesus knowing that he has been vindicated through his resurrection, that he's ascended into heaven, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, and that someday he will come again to judge the wicked and the righteous and set the record straight so that justice prevails? What will you do with him? Will you continue to reject him? If you leave here today and you walk out here saying, I'm not sure, you have made a decision. You're choosing to live your life apart from him. You're denying his sovereign rule over your life. That's one option. Here's the other option. Claim the promises of the word. The promise that by Jesus' death and resurrection, you can be forgiven. You can be acquitted in the courtroom of God. That even though you will die, you will rise again to glory. And if you claim that promise then you will have the comfort of the resurrection in all your sorrows. You'll have the comfort of the resurrection, the promise of the word, and all your confusion as you look out into the world and you say, this is a mess. Our government is a mess. The wars are a mess. Abortion is an evil mess and all that confusion, you'll at least have the comfort to know that your God reigns and he will bring justice. And you'll have the faith and hope to persevere in the face of injustice. If you claim the promise of the gospel as your own, you can spend your time rejoicing in the work of God that he's given you to do until the appointed time when he returns. And you'll know with all the authority of the word of God, that when the time of judgment comes, the final result for you will be this, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more injustice, no more tears. That is the hope you have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we we hear these words We look out into the world, and we're confused, and yet we know that someday all things will be made right. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that we would always look above the sun, into the heavens, at our Savior Jesus, and find our hope in him. In Christ's name, amen.